Oh, what a year. What a year. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly Best of 2021 podcast. We're going to take a meander through some of the big stories that have caught our attention in the last 12 months as features on the Mill newsletter. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris and alongside me as ever, Yoshi Herman, the creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's quality newspaper delivered by email and for a look back at 2021. Yoshi, hi. Hi. What a year. And a year dominated, Yoshi, by lots of news about COVID and health and a bit of politics sprinkled in the mix as well. But as ever, we'll take a a wider view on some of those bigger stories that have ripple effects through our community. Yeah, we've done loads of COVID-19 coverage in the past year with data on the latest case rates and looking at hospitalizations and, you know, the situation inside our hospitals. But I think it's nice to talk about stories that are not about COVID because those stories have carried on, you know, like I'm sure in future this year will be looked back as just like the plague year. You know, this was the COVID-19 time. But actually, if you look at some of our most popular stories, the stories that got the most traction, they weren't about COVID-19. They're about, you know, other bits of life carrying on. And so I think we've both picked out a handful of stories to talk about for the year that are just less to do with COVID and more to do with the interesting things that happen in a city in any given year. Yeah, exactly. And as ever, from the mill, stories that really reflect what's going on under the surface of our communities. We're going to head to Piccadilly Gardens shortly. We'll meet the gypsy community of Bolton and a really, really insightful story about the link between Manchester and China that tells us a huge amount about the development of this city. One of the most fascinating things I think that the mill has published over the last 12 months. Let's start, though, Yoshi, with a story from earlier this year, which on the surface seems really minor, inconsequential. A local dispute that doesn't really have any relevance to anything beyond the few streets that it is relevant to. But that's actually not the case about this low traffic neighbourhood. Yes, we started getting emails about a low traffic neighbourhood in Levens, Human, Burnage. And originally, I remember thinking, God, this feels very, very local. Like if we were a hyper-local Burnage and Levensoon publication, we might do this, but not, you know, not given that we've got this wider remit over Greater Manchester. But then I realised there's something really interesting going on there, which is that local people who wanted a low traffic neighborhood scheme which is where you put these planters that block the traffic into certain roads so that people who live there can still drive there but people who are just using those roads to get to another road you know because their gps is telling them that's the fastest route that you will have much less of that traffic and the idea is to make communities more walkable less focused on cars and more focused on people who are deploying active travel as the lingo goes but you know walking and cycling and and, and that kind of thing. And those local people who wanted that were delighted when, you know, the government made funding available and when they got the backing of Manchester City Council and of Chris Boardman, whose GM's sort of cyclings are. And this was described in 2020 as the first time a sort of local community group had brought forward a proposal like this. There was lots of very positive, you know, coverage of how this was going to work. And it was an experiment. These low traffic neighbourhood schemes have been popping up all over Manchester, all over the country. You know, they're an experiment to see. If you filter a neighbourhood like this, if you try and prevent through traffic on certain roads, does it make people more likely to walk? Does it reduce fumes and emissions that people have to breathe in? But very quickly what happened in Levenshume is it became a bit of a sort of community battle. Like there were two sides of this very quickly. There were the people who wanted it 
And there are lots of those, particularly, you know, people who have invested in cycling and active travel, but also people who just would like their neighbourhood to be more livable. And on the other side, you could very clearly see in these Facebook groups, these local Facebook groups, there were people who hated the idea. They didn't feel like they'd been properly consulted in the consultation, even though, you know, there was a pretty broad consultation period. They didn't think it was for them they kind of felt like, oh, maybe this is the more middle-class Levenshulme dwellers who are academics or who we've moved in in the past few years since Levenshulme has been on the up. You know, maybe it's them sort of imposing their ideas on our community. And it got really, really toxic. And you started to see posters in the windows of local shops. There was a local shop that had a huge banner that said, stop the roadblock, stop inequality on unfiltered roads. And what that was suggesting was the roads that had not been filtered were the poorer roads, you know, which tended to be the the more main roads where you couldn't filter traffic because they are the main thoroughfares. So what you had here was a sort of, we described it as a neighbourhood war about something that, you know, should have been seen as probably a, a very positive measure. I have to say, we got a lot of flack for this piece. It was very, very studiously, carefully reported by Andrea Sandor, who's a brilliant local journalist who we've worked with a lot. And Andrea spoke to both sides. She got really good quotes. She properly looked at this. But we got a lot of flack. You know, some people said, you know, on the pro-low traffic neighbourhood side, the pro-LTN side, said, like, why are you giving so much oxygen of publicity to people who don't have a real argument you know why are you giving it to people who are just sort of turning this into like a culture war thing where it's like it almost became a bit of a a leave versus remain style dispute in local facebook groups you know the graduate uni educated people who you know versus the maybe more sort of old school working class residents i don't think that's exactly what the division was but you know some people were casting it in that way so it was just one of those ones where there's something so local and it feels so minor and yet it turned into this enormous thing i don't know for me it kind of showed how so many reasonably mundane disputes at the moment can turn via social media via facebook groups into like bitterly contested online battles in which people are getting abused, people are getting harassment on both sides, people are constantly ascribing negative motives to the other side rather than trying to understand their position. So yeah, it's it's not a story that probably most people would pick out as one of the big stories of the year, but these LTNs are happening everywhere now. And I did think this one was a particularly fascinating little snapshot of what can go wrong. Yeah, as you say, it is so emblematic of broader politics and political discourse at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I I thought it was a bit of a microcosm. I mean, I I should say, after the trial period with these planters, with these traffic filters, it has been decided that they'll be continued. So clearly, it's overall, it's been seen as a success. And I think that, generally speaking, the evidence is pointing to these schemes being very unpopular when you start them, but actually quite often after they've been tried for a while and they have some good results in terms of reducing rat running and and cars speeding past, you know, residential homes, actually quite often they get a positive response after a while having been tried. So you're seeing some of them being reaffirmed in Stockport and in Trafford. In the case of the Levenshulme one, these planters are staying in place. They are still getting sort of people throwing rubbish in them. You are, you are still seeing sort of opposition being expressed to them. But, you know, consultations have taken place and uh, this is carrying on for the future. So from a very small, very, very local story, Yoshi, to a big one, a massive international geopolitical one, and that is Manchester's relationship with China. 
which, to be honest, at first glance, you could probably miss its depth and the significance of it. I wonder if we start, Yoshi, firstly with Manchester University and its links to China. There are loads of links. I mean, the, the, the thing is about Greater Manchester is it has seen itself as an international place for the past decade, and it has been doing lots of deals and partnerships and research joint projects with lots of different countries. But China has been one of the big ones. I mean, if you look at the announcements coming out of Manchester University over the University of Manchester over the past, you know, three or four years, five years, you do see quite a few of these partnerships. Oh, we'll be researching this aerospace thing, or we're researching this, you know, physics line of work. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, you know, China's an enormous country, a lot of brilliant scientists there. It makes complete sense that the university should be doing these kind of deals. What's changed is that the government's position on China has changed. And certainly there's a lot of sort of backbench conservative China hawkishness going on. And the revelations about detention camps in, in Xinjiang province and the treatment of the Uyghur people in China, that has slightly changed the public mood on China. And it means that not just Greater Manchester as a whole, but you know the University of Manchester in particular, there's more scrutiny of these arrangements and these deals. And that's what we started looking into. Jacqueline Kwan, who is a trainee with us for a few months, just did a really brilliant report on this. The headline is Manchester embrace China, then things started to get sticky. And she talked about some of these different partnerships that have been done between the university and China, and also about Greater Manchester's general lobbying with the Chinese consulate to have closer ties, you know, to have more investment, to have more Chinese property investors, to have more Chinese companies taking on building contracts, which is something else we've reported on. So it's sort of fascinating because a decision has been made in the past couple of decades that Manchester should court China as a place that can bring investment in. There are loads and loads of Chinese students in Manchester. It's become a real favourite destination. I think the football teams have helped that, actually. But there have been lots of these proactive efforts. And Jacqueline talked about, you know, members of the city council going for dinners at the Chinese consulate in Manchester and the way in which these deals have been arranged. And there's one particular man who has been really a, sort of like the China whisperer almost in Manchester. And, and, and Jacqueline wrote about him. So, yeah, this is a piece that I think you would, probably wouldn't normally read in a regional newspaper or a local newspaper, but I think it was actually turned out to be one of our most popular stories of the year. Well, it really speaks to a lot of what's happening in the city, really, doesn't it? And, and, and actually, the, the significance of that relationship is laid bare when you go through, point by point, all the areas that that relationship influences. It's Reese Wally, isn't it? The guy who is um, the sort of China whisperer. And he talks about, in the article, Yoshi, Reese Wally talks about a global city. And I think actually Sir Richard Lees passes comment on this as well, who we've talked about in recent podcasts about Manchester being a global city and that if it wants to open itself up to the world, it has to open itself up to relationships like China. And the contrast between that and, as you say, a growing sense of unease, I guess, around relationships with China. Yeah, you have to be careful with this. I spoke to Jacqueline a lot about this when we were reporting this story, which is you don't want to fall into the trap of treating anything that's Chinese or anything that's related to China as bad, because then you're basically falling into a, sort of a bit of racism there. And you do sometimes get that in media coverage in 
Britain about China. You know, so it's just the automatic assumption that everything is suspicious. Every Chinese student is a spy or could be a spy. You know, it's, that's obviously all rubbish. But what we're talking about here is here, we're talking about the trade-offs of becoming a global city. I think in the 1970s and 1980s, people who ran cities like Manchester, they saw their role as delivering services to people who lived in Manchester, right? By the late 80s, early 90s, there came this idea that the cities in Britain had to compete with each other and they had to be outward looking. So you were competing with Liverpool and you were competing with Leeds and you were competing with Sheffield to get overseas investment. And it's much more outward looking now. The way Manchester sees itself and the way that Greater Manchester sees itself is much more outward looking. It's effectively like foreign policy experts who work for the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Like I've spoken to one of them. And and their job is to work out, you know, how could we engage with different countries? China's been a really big part of that. And this Reese Wally man who spoke to you for this article and who gave us some really interesting comments, he has been, you know, he's done a lot of business in China. He's lived there. He speaks the language. So he's been a big part of like making that relationship work. And I think where the unease comes in is a little bit more when some of these scientific partnerships at the university have been to do with defense and security. Because at that point you start to think, okay, is our research here aiding kind of a regime that spies on its own citizens that is repressing the Uyghur Muslims? Are we involved in some of the darker, you know, human rights abuses being perpetrated by the Chinese Communist Party? I think that's where the the real unease comes in. But yeah, it's one of my favorite articles we've done because it's just such a brilliant insight into something that probably when we started looking into it, I didn't know that much about. There's also a really great piece of the article where it, it contrasts Manchester's history and its heritage that we obviously know quite well around the establishment of the cooperative movement and the suffragette movement and campaigns for freedom, I guess, and that relationship with China and the censorship issues as well. But as you rightly say, Yoshi, I mean, there's so much nuance, not just in that relationship, but also in that article as well. Really, really, really brilliantly done. OK, so from that really big geopolitical story... Let's go back to the ground, Yoshi. Take us to White Moss. As you described it earlier this year, a dreary stretch of former wetland and farms which sits midway between Middleton and Moston, where you met Martin. So this piece begins with the intro. Every day, Martin comes down from his flat and walks to a woodland on the estate where he lives. It's a small thicket of trees behind a car park, which separates his block from the next one along on the estate. There are six other 17-storey towers which were built by the council in the late 1960s in this northernmost tip of Manchester. So that's the scene, right? And I came across this man when I was driving around North Manchester. I was sort of exploring, really. That's what I do sometimes. You know, I, I'm looking for a story and I'd, I'd like a particular interview with someone who maybe isn't famous and one of these male interviews where we just go and meet someone totally regular. And I came across him and he was having a fag outside. He's in his 60s. He's wearing a black hoodie and has kind of graying hair, a really lovely guy. And we, and we just started chatting and chatting and chatting. And he told me about his life. And it turned out he had been living in that block for a long time and he'd been living on the estate for decades. He's lived in this one bedroom council flat for 19 years. And he's also lived in these other blocks on the estate. And this estate is pretty bleak, I think. I think even he, he himself says, you know, not much goes on there. It's uh, these very tall towers. And we talked about his life. And the reason I like this story is because not only do like readers of newspapers not, not normally don't hear from people like this, but like no one really hears from this guy. He, he barely speaks to anyone. He feeds the birds, you know, in the, in the trees next to his block. 
and he sits in his flat, he watches TV, he, he does a bit of sketching. But he effectively, you know, he's on an unemployment benefit related to his mental disability. And he hasn't worked for decades. And he lives a very, very quiet life. And something about that struck me was just how absent from the day-to-day bustle it was because I'd walked home from work that day and then everyone had been um, singing like pop songs out on Stevenson Square in the Northern Quarter. Then, you know, very short drive away, probably, I don't know, it was a 15-minute, 20-minute drive, you're in this place and this guy's just got no link to that at all. He just doesn't go to the city centre, barely ever, barely ever speaks to anyone. He's got a brother who he speaks to occasionally, occasionally goes to the pub with his mate. He's a, he's a United fan, so he goes to the pub to watch the football. One of the problems I think sometimes with journalism is that we only hear from people when like a PR has set a journalist up with them. Or it's often the case that when you hear from someone, it's because an institution has put them forward for an interview, whether it's a charity or whether it's a council or whether it's, you know, the government or a hospital. And the nice thing about speaking to people like Martin, which is not his real name by it, but let, let's obviously use the name that I gave him, is that you're really hearing directly from someone who has not been picked out to illustrate a case study of a particular story. You know, he's been picked out in a much more organic way, which is me meeting him. And yeah, probably one of my favourite pieces I've written for The Mill, even though it took probably half, half an hour to write, maybe an hour to write. And um, I think it offers an insight into, a, into the kind of life we don't actually hear about that much. Yeah, it can, it can also help to bust through some of those caricatures that get built up of people like Martin, can't it, Yoshi? Another time that that happened was when the Mills' Molly Simpson went to my hometown of Bolton to meet the gypsy community. That's right. This was a gypsy community, traveller community living on the edge of Bolton, really, Farnworth, in a valley. And um, when Molly was on the way there, you know, someone on the road asked, like, God, why are you, you know, why are you heading there sort of thing? Like, don't head there. And we'd been trying to write about the gypsy and traveller community for a couple of months. And eventually Molly was just like, look, I'm going to go. I've heard there's a community there. I'm going to go and speak to to this family. And this man called Tommy Senior. He introduces himself, you know, he shakes her hand. This visit isn't arranged at all. Uh, it's just, you know, she's gone there hoping to meet them. And the story he tells, I think, is really moving. He talks about being shunned by people at the local pub after local media coverage painted his family in a negative light. And he talked about how every time they get media coverage, that it's always about, like, you know, an assumption that they've stolen something or an assumption that they've started a fire or an assumption that there's something illegal about what they're doing. And Molly's piece, I think, captured the humanity of the family, captured their real lives, captured how difficult it is to have kids and and have people in the local school be mean to them, you know, in class. You know, there's a quote in there where Tommy says, I grew up in hatred, you know, which is quite a striking quote. I didn't exactly know what he meant, but I think he really meant like we had this prejudice about travellers and gypsies all around us. Now, it's a really controversial topic because traveller families live a different lifestyle. You know, they don't have permanent fixed address for the whole of their lives. They don't operate in the way that, like, British society has generally operated, which is about landowning and about, like, having a particular address where the authorities can find you and sending your kids to the same school for an extended period. That's not generally how they operate. And, so, and, and there's always been this tension in British society about how you can integrate a community of people that live in a completely different way. And one of the reasons that we were interested in doing this was because the government's crime and policing bill has some really sort of illiberal, anti-traveller, anti-gypsy clauses in it, which would make it effectively much easier for the police to clamp down on travellers. 
a barrister and a, and a, a blogger and a, a legal writer who I really like has been writing about, you know, this particular set of new laws that are going to come in. And he condemns the evil, and I quote, the evil of a proposed law permitting the police to confiscate the homes of the poor. And that's what he's talking about there. So the nice thing about this story was that Molly really, really captured the humanity of these people and the way in which they live their lives. And there's a nice anecdote in there where a couple are, are sort of walking through the area and they really need the loo and the traveller family, Tommy's family, they offer this couple, you know, come and use the loo in our place. And they sort of see them walking up the path and they're drinking coffee together. And this couple admits, I think the old man, you know, he admits, I was scared, you know, to come here because it's a traveling encampment and, 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 and you guys are always, I suppose, you know, portrayed in a negative light. But I'm so happy that I've met you. You know, you're nice people. You're not as bad as people make out. And that's, I think, also is what the story does is it shows, you know, there's a family here and they are always associated with criminality in the, in the media, despite not having been convicted of anything. And they get pretty bad deal from the council. I mean, the council offers this pitch, but like sometimes the water doesn't work. Sometimes the loos can't operate. You know, there's, there's sort of bits of metal lying around, rusty bits of metal that the kids can hurt themselves on. It doesn't sound like... You know, the council's provision is particularly brilliant. We did offer the council an opportunity to comment in the story, and they did comment. So you can see that in our piece. But this is a difficult one. How do you provide for a way of life that's completely different to our normal conventional mainstream way of life? I don't think from reading this story, it doesn't feel like local authorities are quite rising to that challenge. And I liked the fact that this story combined the sort of political and the current situation with this new law with just the human details of, of, the, of this family and how they've been treated and how they felt and also how local media coverage affects them. I just don't think people realise that if you have a particular community that is always referred to in a negative light, it's always referred to in terms of like possible illegality or, you know, possible trespass or whatever, how that affects the human beings involved, the, the kind of abuse they get in the pub, abuse they get at school, the abuse they get out on the road. So the piece brought that to light and that's why I wanted to sort of talk about it and highlight it. I find it very affecting, I must admit, especially that quote from Tommy that you referenced, Yoshi grew up in Hatred. Also, Molly points out in, the, in this article that, according to her research, that in the year up to this article, the Bolton News had published eight stories about gypsies and travellers in the past year, all of which concern stolen vehicles, police raids, illegal encampments and antisocial behaviour, and that the comments underneath were just a stream of anti-gypsy sentiment. There are very few sections of society left, really, Yoshi, where that would be so openly, and maybe acceptable isn't the right word, but so prevalent that people feel able to to be so hateful towards a section of society. I think it is accepted, actually. I think in a lot of, you know, maybe not on if, when people go on the radio and they go on the TV, but I think it is acceptable in a lot of bits of society still to have really prejudiced feelings against the traveller community, you know. Clearly there are instances where people in the traveller community have been convicted of theft or convicted of violent crime. I mean, that has happened, and I'm sure there are some communities that have been burned by having a, a bad encounter. But the overall tenor of conversation around this community is that they're criminals and like that's just not borne out by the, the evidence. There would be a lot more criminal convictions if that were the case. It seems like as a society, you know, we need to have a bit of a, a rethink about how we make provision for people who just yeah, live, live in a different way. 
another group of people, Yoshi, who perhaps had an unfair picture painted of them in a different way and arguably maybe less consequential. Those in Piccadilly Gardens and the people who gather in this part of Manchester that is fiercely debated. You approach anybody in and around the city or around Greater Manchester and everybody will have a take on what Piccadilly Gardens is like and what it should look like in their mind. The Mill's Danny Cole went along to Piccadilly Gardens to do what the Mill does, Yoshi. There's a theme developing here, and that's get onto the ground, meet the people, and figure out what's really going on. <laughs> yeah, perhaps it's brave of us to wade into the Piccadilly Gardens debate because people are so angry about Piccadilly Gardens in Facebook groups, and you see so much sort of, oh, Piccadilly Gardens has gone to hell. Look, clearly there is some pretty major social problems that manifest themselves at Piccadilly Gardens. They're not created by Piccadilly Gardens. It's just that there are homeless people there. There are people who are taking drugs. There are people who've got, you know, very serious mental health problems. And they gather at Piccadilly Gardens because I think it's mostly because it's a very central area. It is linked to all the different transit. It's the absolute hub of transit. The metro, buses and trains feed off basically onto Piccadilly Gardens pretty much. So it's probably the natural place in the city for these different elements to manifest themselves. And it's given like Piccadilly Gardens this really bad reputation for being just an absolute hive of criminality. There is clearly criminality there. Like, you know, police are there quite often. There are arrests there. I didn't want to wade into that debate and say Piccadilly Gardens is great or Piccadilly Gardens is not what you think it is. I didn't really want to do that. But I live in the Northern Quarter and our office is on St Anne's Square. So I walk through Piccadilly Gardens at least twice a day. And I just noticed over the summer it was a real hangout spot for a certain type of teenager, you know, teenage locals who sort of getting a bit drunk in the in the evening, hanging out in the day, hanging around in their cliques, sort of slightly shouting at each other, taking videos, dancing. I kept on saying to Danny, I was like, you've got to go and capture this teenage kind of scene at Piccadilly Gardens, right? Because it's interesting. And eventually we got that, like Danny went down and we got some really like interesting quotes and basically like, hung out with them. And like, they were kind of like, yeah, like sort of treating her as someone who they could tell about who they liked and who they didn't like and all the little cliques and stuff. I thought it was a really, really interesting piece. It's, it wasn't the mill trying to say, no, there's nothing wrong at Piccadilly Gardens or there's no criminality. It was about us saying, there are people who have made a home for themselves there. And, and I mean like young people who like the anonymity of it in a way like these big crowds of people you can go in and out you can interact with people you can shout at people you can get to know people you've got these different tribes almost and like you know we, we described it as a teenage playground that's exactly how it felt like to me over the summer and you know this is a bit of the city that the council has tried many many times to improve you know people always share in local facebook groups these pictures of how idyllic it was in the 50s and 60s with all these lovely plants growing when it went when it was a sunken gardens but actually there was an awful lot of complaint at the time about criminality and about drug abuse and whatever so it got remodeled it got me remodeled again after uh, just before the commonwealth games now it's getting remodeled again there is going to be a, another redesign it's going to try and take account of like sight lines and crime they're going to try and get around this problem of the you know, the concrete wall, which was considered a great sort of modernist piece of architecture by a lot of people, but actually 
has become a hated thing among many Mancunians. It's, there's a perception that it was a place where drug dealers hung out and it stopped the police from being able to see things. I don't fully buy that, actually. I think that might be not quite what's going on here. But the biggest thing is all these transport routes are still going to be dumping thousands of people on Piccadilly Gardens every hour. And I think you're probably always going to get while these sorts of social problems that you see at Piccadilly Gardens exist, I think they're probably always going to show up there. And I think the nice thing about this piece was that it highlighted some of the positive of, of, of this place, and that is that these people have made it their home. You know, it's not like empty. It's not just like a bunch of, you know, people who have been sleeping rough and, and, and they come there to, you know, in, in, the, in the daytime. You know, there, there is, of course, a bit of that. And there's a, there, there is, you know, clearly some problems with drugs. But there are also these young people who've made it their home. I liked that. I, I thought that was a cool story. Mm. And actually, regardless of what you think about Piccadilly Gardens and its design, it is a fas- fascinating social study, isn't it? <laughs> social science, for sure. There's a really nice uh, bit in the article from Danny where she meets one of the girls who's come over from Bradford and she says, I'm gay and I come to Manchester to be myself. I can be free here, she says. I've made lots of friends here. They're all like my family. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. Like you wouldn't, if you saw some kid at Piccadilly Gardens while you're walking through, you wouldn't be like, that person's come from Bradford. They're slightly escaping, like a slightly conservative household. They come here, they've made loads of friends. You just wouldn't know that backstory. So I really liked that Danny got down to that. Yeah, you will lose that, you know, if you if you absolutely sanitise the place and make it extremely um, pleasant for overseas tourists to hang out there and you put some more luxury shops on the square. Yeah, if you sanitise that space, sure, you'll get a very different type of space. But you, what you won't have is, is some of these subcultures and groups existing there. So, you know, those are the trade-offs. I'm sure a lot of people would take that trade-off, but I thought it was important to record the life that currently exists there. Yoshi, 2022, my friend, what's on the horizon? What's coming up? What's on your radar? Well, that's such a good question. I mean, I suppose not to get into the sort of two nuts and bolts of the mill and like under the bonnet, but we have had a year where we've essentially been establishing ourselves. Like in, in 2020, we were just like a totally new experiment. It was pretty much me doing it on my own. And 2021 has been basically the first year of the first full year of the mill. And it's been the first year where we've had a bit of a team you know I brought Danny in in April Molly joined in the summer we've now got Jack Dilhanty who's doing our shifts with us and hopefully will be able to join us full-time next year so it's the first time we've had that sort of team we've had Sophie Atkinson um, part-time doing a lot of editing and writing Harry Shookman who's doing some part-time stuff so it's kind of like you know to answer your question in like an internal way I see it as the time that we can actually hit the ground running with a team for a whole year with much more experience about how to do things. I think we've got more resource to take on important stories. Definitely there are certain stories that we want to do more on. You know, I think we've done some important reporting on the health system and I think we want to do more on that because Jack Delhanty is, is good at that sort of stuff. I think there are some important social stories that we've only just started really digging into. We want to do more with our Northern Project series about reporting in uh, the north of Greater Manchester. But I'm just excited to see what you can do when you've got a team who've all been trained up to really like hit the ground running and to take on stories themselves. It's just going to be a lot less reliant on me and a lot more, I think we're going to have a lot more variety. There are some important stories about how Greater Manchester comes out of the pandemic, for sure. But I think, you know, as you know, from speaking to me every week, like a lot of our interest is often in things that are not particularly current. They're like, they've been around for ages and we're like taking another look at them. We want to do, I think, more stories where you're like, 
oh, only the mail could have done that. Like that's, you wouldn't read that in a, in a local paper. You wouldn't read, read that in a regional paper. So I hope there's plenty of things like that. I hope we can break more stories. I hope we can do more on local politics because it's only started, something we've really started picking up since we did that Oldham story with Sean Fielding and the, and the, the council leader losing his seat and stuff. So since then, we've done some in Oldham. We've done some in Manchester. I hope we can do a little bit more because I think there are some really interesting stories there. And obviously, we want this podcast to go from strength to strength. So if you are listening to this and you've enjoyed this episode, you enjoyed what we're doing, we'd obviously love you to tell a few friends about the podcast because, um, yeah, we'd really like this to take off as a as one of the ways that we can deliver our journalism around the city I suppose for sure Yoshi thank you thank you for letting me be a part of it as well it's such a pleasure such a joy to do this every week oh thanks for being part of it but you've been brilliant thank you thank you as well to listen, for listening for subscribing for being a part of The Mill and The Manchester Weekly this year and don't forget you know the deal plenty more of that sort of stuff if you want to be a part of this for 2022 manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe for more news events and these deep deep dives into such fascinating parts of the city we'll be back in 2022 so for now Yoshi thank you thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>